Uh, I was going to say something before he. I'm sorry. We'll me. have choir out there. I, How's I'm that? Sorry. We have choir out there. Uh, now, the Jeremy's class is dismissed this way, and then Finding the Rock with Brendan. Where are you, Brendan? Is he already gone? He's already gone. God bless Finding the Rock and everybody going through the Mary's class. God bless you, and give them a hand, everybody, as they go. Tonight, we finish Romans. Are you glad? Are you sad? It's been a 16-week, I mean, I, I did a chapter, and you didn't think I could do a chapter a week. You really didn't. I knew you didn't think I could do it. You know that I can camp on one verse for a month. I could, but we did it a chapter. This is the 16th week. Now, not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after, we're going to do a six-week series on the most famous psalm in the world. What is it? The 23rd. It's not a psalm to die by, it's a psalm to live by. And so it's going to be a great series. I'm telling you, it's so rich. Uh, and you're going to want to be there uh, following the shepherd through the 23rd psalm. And uh, so let's look tonight and let's pray. First of all, Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful series in the book of Romans. Lord, this incredible word from God. And we pray that, Lord, as we close it out tonight, that the wisdom, the light, the understanding, the knowledge we've received will be, Lord, assimilated into our spirit and life for life, and we'll never lose that divine deposit. Now speak to us tonight as we close out this great book in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And let's look at this now. Uh, take a walk down the Roman road. As we come to the close of Romans, notice what we're calling it, Love's Many Contacts. Because, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Let me just read a little bit. As we come to the close of Romans, we see that Paul was a man with many friends. Think about that. He was not a loner. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If I'm going to go um, to the lake with any of the apostles, the last one I'm going with is Paul. He's just too serious. I think I would go with Simon Peter. I mean, you know, he walked on water a little bit, had some fun. It just seems like he'd be more fun. But Paul, we picture as being so uh, serious and austere and, and um, kind of stoic. But no, this man had a huge heart. So many friends, his great heart embraced all the people of God, and his love for them provoked him to take a keen interest in them. He really cared what happened to them. Every contact, contact was a potential friend, and Paul made many contacts. The final chapter, this final chapter, reveals the humanity of Paul like no other. This master theologian, and that's what he was, whose spiritual understanding and brilliant mind went where none other beside Christ himself has ever gone. And I believe that. Love people. Paul was the single greatest Christian in the history of the church. And the most brilliant mind and the deepest in his spiritual understanding and grasp, greater than Augustine, greater than any of the others that have left their mark on the history of the church. Paul, it goes without saying, 
was number one. Now, he had great friendships. He hurt like we hurt. He felt rejection, as we have, and cared very much about maintaining the relationships that God had given him. He cared about his friendships. In a day and age with no phones, think about it, no computers, no email, no Facebook, no Twitter, or other techno-gadgetry, Paul was able to keep in contact with the church universal just by writing letters. There wasn't any post office, but he got the letters there. He knew many of the Christian leaders by name. They were all down in his prayer book, and now he checks them off one by one as he draws his letter to a close. Twenty-six people are mentioned in Romans 16. Wow. If I'm mentioned in there, I sure want it to be good. Amen? A lot of people have read that book. <laughs> okay. It's very instructive to take note of the brief descriptions given by Paul of his friends, for they reveal valuable character strengths we can all learn from. Now the first person mentioned is a woman. All you ladies say amen. Her name is, I heard one radio preacher, Phoebe. No, 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 no. It's Phoebe is mentioned. And look what it says in verse 1. Let's just start reading. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancrea, or Sancria. Now, he's commending Phoebe. Look what he says about her. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. Why? She has been a great help to many people, including me. Now notice, Paul has always called a, a, an anti-woman preacher because he said that women should not exercise authority over men in the church. So feminists hate Paul. They don't understand Paul. Because here, right out of the chute, he's promoting and bragging on a woman and saying it was a woman who helped me in the ministry. So unfortunately, he gets a bad rap for something that he really did not believe. He honored women like his Savior did. Now, it was a wise custom in the early church, and one still practiced in some circles today, to furnish believers leaving one locality for another with letters of commendation to the church in the new vicinity. We call it moving our letter. Now, charismatic churches don't move their letters. They move their bodies around. They land here, they land there, they flit here, they flit there, and we call them cruise-matics. Thank God we have many, many, many faithful people here. But uh, you've seen the phenomenon. They're here, they're there. It's the revolving door in the church. But here in the early church, this is likely where the practice of moving your letter came from. Because when somebody was leaving one church for another one, they would send a letter of commendation about them, ahead of them, to their new church. And they would either say good or bad, like watch out or bless them. I'll tell you, there are times I've wanted to return to that. <laughs> now watch. Paul alludes to this practice when writing to the Corinthians. Look what he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. <clears throat> are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? There he is. He's talking about the same thing. Sending a letter of commendation about somebody to a new church. 
Now this practice assured for the traveler a friendly reception in the strange city and helped the church there in its reception of believers from other places. So at least the body of Christ they were headed to knew who was coming and a little bit about them. I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. Now the Greek word Paul uses to describe Phoebe's ministry means a patroness or a protectress. He says Phoebe's ministry was to protect. Phoebe had been a valuable assistant, even a protector to many. She had served as a deaconess. Did you know that? There's female deacons. There's deacons and deaconesses, or deacons and deaconettes. Y'all are going to have to know when I'm kidding. You're looking at me real serious. Deaconettes? So look at this. She had served as a deaconette in the church at Sancria. She was a deacon. Deacon comes from a word meaning to serve others. And so she had a great commendation from the man himself, Paul. All right? Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of this series, while at Corinth, Paul heard that a woman named Phoebe, we covered this in the first night of this series, Paul heard that a woman named Phoebe, an active member of the church at nearby Sancria, was planning a visit to the city of Rome. I'll write you a letter of commendation to the saints at Rome, Phoebe, he said. And we're, that's, we're imagining that, but this is probably how it happened, because it was Phoebe who carried the letter to the Romans that we have covered in the last 16 weeks, from Corinth to Rome. It was this woman. The Christian skeptic Renan is credited with saying this, that when Phoebe sailed away from Corinth, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. Indeed, she did. He was right. Thank God for Phoebe. Can we just say thank God for Phoebe? If Phoebe, uh, because she was a good servant, we have Romans. Amen. Now, next in Paul's list are Priscilla and Aquila. Sounds like brother and sister, but they weren't. They were married. Verses 3 to 5. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now he tells us something about them. Look at verse 4. Very powerful. What did they do? They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to Priscilla and Aquila, the dynamic married duo, because they risked their lives for Paul. He says, greet also the church that meets at their house. So they had a house church. Now some people wonder, why in the world do you meet in houses all over the Metroplex on the fourth Sunday night of every month? Well, here's here's one of the reasons why. Because in the New Testament, they met in the temple, and they met from house to house. And Aquila and Priscilla had a church in their house. Priscilla and Aquila modeled loyalty to the point of losing their own lives. Their love was felt by every single one of the churches of the Gentiles because every one of the churches of the Gentiles passionately loved the Apostle Paul. And they gave their life, would have laid down their lives for him. They risked their lives for him. When I read something like that, i got to ask myself, how often do you see that kind of loyalty these days? When everybody's out for themselves, everybody's climbing the ladder, 
I mean, sometimes we won't even go down the street for somebody, much less lay down our life for somebody. This is the spirit of agape love that was in the early church. <clears throat> Instead of beating each other up, they died for each other. Powerful stuff. Now let's look at another name. Now you're going to have to give me a gold star tonight when I'm done for just naming these names. <laughs> and, and, and I may not be completely accurate with some of them. You by radio don't write me. I repent now. I'm probably going to miss a few. Who, who cares? We're never going to meet them anyway. But let's look at what it says about them. Paul mentions Epenetus or Epinetus, probably Epinetus. Verse 5, he says, Greet my dear friend Epinetus who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Wow, Paul remembered the first man that came to Jesus when he went to Asia. That Eponidas was Paul's first convert in Asia would make him especially dear to the apostle. Paul had seen a great revival in Asia, particularly at Ephesus. The fires had spread. Now, as we read where the fire revival spread, look at how many of these churches named are named in Revelations when Jesus talks about them in that book. Smyrna, that's there. Pergamos, that's there. Thyatira, that's there. Sardis is there. Philadelphia is there. Laodicea is there. Matter of fact, those first seven are the seven mentioned in Revelation. Then he goes on and says, Colossae, Hierapolis, and other cities. So he had revival all over the place, but he never forgot his first convert. Powerful stuff. I don't forget my first converts. I have many, many people that came to Christ through my ministry. Uh, they're like my children in the faith, and I remember every one of them. I stay in contact with as many of them as I can. Uh, there's been a lot, and I'm thankful for them, and I remember them. But particularly when you first begin to minister and somebody becomes a Christian through your message. Now, Eponidas is followed by Mary. Look at verse 6. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. There again, he gives us a glimpse into something a woman did in ministry. Look at this. Now, there's a half dozen Marys in the New Testament. There's the mother of the Lord. There's Mary Magdalene, out of whom came seven devils. The sister of Lazarus is another one, Mary and Martha. The wife of Clopas. The mother of John Mark was named Mary. And then there's this unknown saint. We don't know anything else about this Mary but what is mentioned right here. And what does it say about her? Now, there's also two forms of the word Mary in the New Testament. One being Mar Miriam, the Jewish name. So Miriam is Mary in Hebrew. And the other is Maria, a gentle, Gentile name. Whoever this Mary was, she had worn herself out for the Christians in that city. This woman left a mark. Now let me tell you something. If God thought fit to put your name in the Bible and brag on you, we need to look and see what she did. So the word for labor is the same word used for the Lord when it says he was wearied with his long journey and sat down by the well in John 4, verse 6, when the woman at the well met him, and he led her to himself. Now, it's the same word used of the disciples when after a fruitless night's fishing, they told the Lord that they had toiled all night. 
Think of somebody fishing all night long till the break of dawn and they've caught nothing. Think of how tired and worn out they'd be. Same word is used to describe the labor of this woman, Mary. She served the church. Ladies, I'm going to tell you something. You can leave a mark for Jesus. You can, the, the, the ministry of women in the church is obviously, clearly so valuable that the Holy Spirit has over and over again in this chapter mentioned women and their ministry in the early church. Mary of Rome then joins the ranks of the multitudes who for the cause of Christ and on behalf of His people have worked their fingers to the bone and not grown weary in well-doing. Can I have an amen to that? Praise God. So next, Paul addresses, guess what? He had relatives. Uh Uh-oh, now they know you like no one else knows you. You know the feeling that comes over you when Thanksgiving and Christmas roll around and all the in-laws and all the outlaws are coming to your house to see you. They know your stuff. Well, look at here. In verse 7, Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. Whoa! They were in prison together. But there's something interesting. They are outstanding among the apostles. So he puts them right there with the apostles. And look what he says. They were in Christ before I was. So these folks, these relatives of of his, Andronicus and Junius, came to Jesus early on because Paul wasn't that long in coming. And they were in Christ before him. So you know what that tells us? Think about it. Say before Paul, we can picture this couple moving in the highest of church circles. They knew what their relative, Saul, was doing to the church. People would go up to them as Andronicus and Junius and say, Man, what's, what's with Saul, your relative? Hey, we're praying for him. Well, he's killing Christians. We're praying for him. Now look at this. You know they were greatly concerned about the fanaticism and the bloodlust, the violence of young Saul who stood there while Stephen was stoned to death and said, Amen. That was their relative, Saul. Urgently they longed for his conversion. You know they did. You know they were on their face interceding for their relative, Saul. I don't know if he was a cousin. I don't know what the relation was, but they were blood relatives. And they laid hold of God in the place of prayer for his soul. And and I never thought of this before. I've always attributed the conversion of Saul to Stephen's prayer when he said, Lay not this sin against them. But now I know he had relatives in Christ before him who, no doubt about it, were praying for his salvation. Andronicus and Junius. And so you know they had a benefit when they heard that Saul had become Paul and was preaching the blood of Jesus. Amen? So they had great joy at his conversion, and no doubt they were stunned at the subsequent spectacular results of his preaching, pioneering, and his incredible second-to-none writing. Andronicus and Junius teach us to never give up in praying for the conversion of family. Come on, everybody. How many of you have somebody that needs to be saved? That ought to encourage you right there. Now, next we see that to be loved by Paul, to be counted as one of his helpers, 
were great distinctions. He says this, verses 8 and 9, Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my dear friend, Stachus, is really how it's meant, uh, it's an U sound in the original, though it has a Y up there, Stachus. So look how he said, my dear friend, Ampliatus, who I love in the Lord, my fellow worker in Christ, Urbanus, he names them. He's grateful for them. Now let's pause a minute. When was the last time you sent somebody a thank you card and said thank you for what you've meant in my life, in my faith? I'm going to tell you who's a master at that, that woman right there, Kathy. She's a master at it. She makes me look so good. Because she sends cards. I, I sign probably three cards a day. That she lets me sign like I did it. And sends off cards to people. I'm just telling you. Can I, I'm just bragging on her for a minute. Because she thinks of things like that. And she's always writing people and saying, thank you, we bless you, we're praying for you. That's Kathy. This was Paul. Look how he names them. And thanks God for them. Now, these unknown, never again mentioned saints flash for a moment in the reflected light of Paul's greatness. Yet even the humblest of Paul's beloved helpers is praised and remembered. You know, it would do you good to go home tonight and think, who, who's been blessing me? Who's prayed for me? Uh, who has really played a role in my growth in the faith? And send him a letter. Send him a card. Just say thank you. I believe that God blesses you when you do that. And somebody needs to hear that from you. That's free. That wasn't in my notes. Okay? Now next, look at verse 10. We got more names. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, the word approved refers to somebody who passes through a tough time, even a severe ordeal. And they emerge with their faith intact. Think of Job. Think of Simon Peter when he denied the Lord. Went through the fiery trial of a failure. Think of Paul. Think of uh, David. Think of so many. Moses. All through the Bible. Men and women who suffered in the faith and emerged on the other side with their faith intact. That's what approved means. Uh, they, they, they survive a severe ordeal. Their faith uh, comes out intact. And hence, the Bible says they are genuine. They are genuine. Now, here was a saint who had earned his spurs, Apelles. He had in some way been put to the test and had won the approval of his brethren. So some of you that are going through a real trial right now, you're going to come out of it one day. It says, yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death. You're not staying there. You're coming out on the other side, and when you do, don't come out grumbling, complaining. Well, you're probably not coming out if you're doing that. <laughs> trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. When you don't understand God's hand, trust His heart. He's going to bring you through. And when you come out on the other side, you are going to be approved. You're going to be tested and approved. And God is going to put an extra strong blessing and anointing on your life because you came through tested, tried, and proven truth. And that's the that way it happens. Now next, verses 10 and 11, he says, Greet those who belong to the household 
of Aristobulus. What a name. Aristobulus. And then greet Herodian, my relative. There's another relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Remember the story of Narcissus? You know, we live in the age of Narcissus. Are you all aware of that? So many people are narcissistic in our day. Narcissus was that Greek uh, mythology character who was extremely, as a man, extremely handsome man. He looked at his reflection in the uh, pool of water one day and fell in love with his own reflection, fell so in love with his own reflection that he couldn't tear himself away, and he sat there and died looking at his own reflection. That's Greek mythology, but I know a few of those. Huh? They wake up and they sing, there is none like you, when they look in the mirror. They think they're better than others, greater than others, but no, 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 walk with the Lord a while. He will knock that out of you. He wants you staring at Him, amen, not you. That's a free Greek mythology lesson. One commentator suggests that Aristobulus was a grandson of Herod the Great. That's interesting. Once again, Paul says hello to a relative and asks to Narcissus. The thing of interest is that Paul was keenly aware that some in his household, that is the household of Narcissus, were saved and others were not. Now that shows us how in tune with the people of God Paul was because he knew the ones in households who were saved and those who weren't. He cared. He would have been a great life leader. Bob? Amen. Now next, Paul again notes the hard labor of love on the part of some women. Here he goes. Ladies, you need to be amening Paul by the time I'm done with this because he's naming woman after woman. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. There it is again. Greet the beloved Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Now Tryphena and Tryphosa were most likely sisters. The name reveals it. Persis is assumed to have been a more elderly sister in Christ because her labor is referred to in the past tense, something she did and it's over. But these two sisters, Tryphena and Tryphosa, it's worth noting that Paul was very careful to shun all appearance of evil. Say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Jeff? Watch this. When speaking of those he loved in the Lord who were brothers, he called them my beloved. But when speaking of sisters in Christ, he would use the more formal expression, the beloved, not my beloved. He didn't want to give the impression anything was going on with the sisters. Y'all catch that? Because he was single, you know. So when he talked about them, it was the beloved. He talked about the brothers, my beloved. Because he knew he was safe there. Now next in verse 13, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. This Rufus may have been the son of Simon the Cyrenian. And catch this, the man who carried the cross for Christ. This Rufus may have been the son of Simon. Remember the story, Jesus was going up the hill of Gotha and he dropped the cross because he was so beaten up and tired. And a man was pulled out of the crowd named Simon. And Simon hoisted that cross and carried it up the hill for Jesus. Wow. Amen. 
That just went all over me. What an honor. And what it must have done to him. This man beaten beyond recognition. Rufus may have been Simon's son. Mark, who wrote his gospel for the Romans, describes Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. The likelihood being that this man was the Rufus known in the Roman church. Wouldn't it make sense that the man who carried Jesus' cross was so moved he brought his son to the faith? Yeah. The reference Paul makes to Rufus' mother possibly refers to Paul's days in Antioch when perhaps he was a guest in their home. That's probably the way it happened. So he's just affectionately calling her, she was like a mother figure to me. She was like a mother for me and helped take care of me. Now next, Paul refers to another house church. Verse 14, salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute them. Just tell them, hey, in East Texas vernacular, say hey for me. One group of saints met in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Here is a second group meeting in another home. Okay? Now, and finally, a last home group is mentioned. Verse 15, salute Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints which are with them. Tell them hey too. This is the third assembly of believers in Rome mentioned in this chapter. And with this group, Paul brings his salutations of the Roman Christians to a close. So he's done naming names, that is, names in home churches, house churches. Now let's go into something else that he deals with. Verse 16, the holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches in Christ send greetings. Now just for your information at TPC, we don't do holy kisses. Y'all are so somber tonight. <laughs> if you're married, we don't care if you do a holy kiss, but no, we don't greet one another with a holy kiss because the kiss doesn't stay holy for very long in America. So watch this. I'm trying to keep this light. Y'all are just staring at me like. I hope the radio audience isn't that way. Of course, I can't see them. Now, the instruction to greet one another with a holy kiss is repeated five times in the New Testament. In the East, a kiss was and is a sign of respect and affection. Uh, it was the traditional Oriental greeting. We do hearty handshakes, and it gives the same idea in our culture. Amen? When you go over to the Middle East, I've had them walk up to me in the Middle East and kiss me on the cheek. Mm -mm, that's the way they do it. And that's fine. Uh, but here, we shake hands or we do sideway hugs. You all know what the sideway hug is? The holy hug. So serious tonight. Man. We, we just keep it holy. We do it sideways. Bless you. Okay, I'm moving right along. Next, Paul addresses what would be one of his lifelong concerns. Everybody say with me, false teachers. Now, this is one of Paul's constant drumbeats. And here he goes again, verse 17 to 18. I urge you, brothers, everybody say Mark. That's a strong word. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. Mark those who do what? Read it for me. Cause divisions and offenses contrary to what? The doctrine you have been taught. 
and, uh, and do what to them? But that's not very loving, Pastor Jeff, avoiding somebody. We're supposed to love everybody. we got to get out of this political correctness definition of love. Because love will sometimes, are you ready, shun others. Else they will never know they're wrong. If you're treating them like you're treating everybody else, then they think you're saying everything you're doing is great. There are times you've got to show that someone is wrong. So he tells us right here, it's not a suggestion. He's not telling us to go pray about it. He says, do it. Avoid them. If they're causing offenses, if they're causing division, avoid them. He says in verse 18, for such people are not serving Jesus Christ. If they're bringing division and they're bringing offenses to the body of Christ, they are not serving Jesus. But their own appetites, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Any naive people in our country today? I ought to have a better amen than that. I'm telling you, our country is tragically and shockingly and, and sadly naive. Now, mark them, he says. That word mark comes from the Greek word skopos. Skopos is the word we get scope, like a rifle scope. Skopos. Scope it out. Draw the bead. Put something in the crosshair. That's what he's saying. And what are we to put in the crosshairs? What are we to mark out and note? Those who are causing division and bringing offenses. You're not supposed to ignore them. You're not supposed to act like they're not there. You're not supposed to treat them like you treat everybody else. You're going to mark them, scope them out, and watch them. And be careful. Beware of them. Avoid what they're saying and what they're teaching. Avoid it. Turn away. Divisions, the word he uses in that passage, is the same word as discord. It is translated seditions in Galatians 5.20, where it's listed as one of the works of the flesh and where it keeps close company uh, with heresies. When you see divisions, you almost always see the word heresy. So people will come into the body of Christ with false teachings, with erroneous teachings, contrary to what you have been taught, and they will lead the naive who have not been well taught astray. People ask me, why do you go through the Bible on Wednesday nights? Why do you teach whole books? This is why. Because the more you know about the Word of God, the less chance there is that you will be deceived. I was talking to somebody today who uh, is a Jehovah's Witness. I said, did you know that's bad teaching and that it's a cult? It is? No, I didn't know that. Bad teaching? What do you mean? You shouldn't have asked me that. <laughs> but, see, the more we know, the, the problem with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is it's saved but not taught. You all hear me tonight. This is why I labor and struggle and strain in the Word all the time to teach you the Word of God, not just a few pet verses, but the whole warp and woof and sweep of Scripture, so that when they come knocking on your door, you will not be deceived. 
The only inoculation to deception is truth. The word offenses comes from the word scandalon. These people cause a scandal. We get scandal from scandalon. Well, what does it mean? It means trap stick. What's a trap stick? A trap stick was a crooked stick on which a bait was fastened, which being struck by the animal sprung the trap. Uh, we can make it a mouse trap. It's that little lever where you put the cheese. That's the scandalon. You put the cheese on that little lever, the mouse comes nibbling along, he nibbles on that cheese, he tricks the trap stick. That's the scandalon of the trap, and it comes down on his head, and he's gone. False teaching is a trap stick. And if you bite that cheese, the trap is sprung on you. And it's very, very difficult to deliver somebody who has fallen to a cult. Quickly, because of time, but I got to tell you a quick story. I, I had a couple that I, we really loved in East Texas that were a part of our church in East Texas. We had some great, great people down there. And this one couple was, was a part of our, uh, the, the older set that we liked getting around and having fun with and playing dominoes with and that kind of thing. Just this wonderful couple. But a false teacher got into their home. And I have never in my life, I'm telling you ever, and I've seen this happen a lot, never have I seen a, a, a couple undergo such an incredibly horrible transformation as they began to swallow this false doctrine. And it had to do with um, all kinds of things, but one of the aspects of it was anti-Semitism. And I'll never forget sitting, eating with this man, thinking, is there any way I can deliver him from this trap stick? The trap has sprung on him, and he has been taken by a trap because he didn't know the Word of God good enough. This taught me, and he looked at me, and it was almost like a demon spirit was looking out of his eye at me, and he said, I hate them nasty Jews. And you could have just slapped me in the face. Because they had been among us. They had lifted their hands to worship God. They had loved Jesus. But a offense causer, a false teacher, wormed his way into their life. And that little bit of leaven leavened the whole lump until he was completely destroyed by a trap stick, a scandal on, an offense. If you don't handle an offense, an offense will handle you. So this is why we go through the Word of God here on Wednesday nights. I don't know very many that do, but I want you to know the Word of God. Hence, anything which one strikes or stumbles against, like tripping when you're walking across the sidewalk, you trip. That's the idea of a trap stick or a scandal on. A, a stumbling block, a cause of stumbling, it well describes the activity of the cultist. The believer is to be on guard against teachers who come to divide and destroy the local church. Heresy will make little progress in a church that is rooted in the apostles' doctrine mentioned in Acts 2.42. That's why we take you through Finding the Rock. Ten messages, ten teachings on the basic doctrinal tenets of the faith so that you will know what you believe and why you believe it. If you come to this church, you're going to get taught the Word, not my thoughts, the Word. 
You will know the truth, and truth will make you free. Amen? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other cultic teachings find their most fruitful field for recruits in the ranks of those who have some smattering of religion, but who are largely ignorant of the broad, basic tenets of the Christian faith. They prey on those kind of people, and they get them all the time. Verse 19, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, you Roman church. But I want you to be wise about what is good. Everybody say this with me. Wise about what is good. And innocent about what is evil. Powerful there. There's no need to give ear to the evil teachings of the cultists. Well, pastor, shouldn't I let them into my living room and sit them down and set them straight? Can I be honest with you? You know what the Bible tells you to do? Slam the door in their face. It does not. Yes, it does. Well, I've never seen that. Well, that's why I'm up here. Because I have. <laughs> it tells you, have nothing to do with them. Well, isn't that going to hurt their feelings? It may make them walk away and go, wow, maybe there is something wrong with this. Next, a promise for the obedient, verse 20, and the God of peace. Read this with me. This is great. If you shun evil and you're full of the word, and you're not deceived, look what it says, the God of peace, read it, the God of peace will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now the devil, the father of lies, lurks behind all the systems of deception that plague mankind. He is the author of all the various religious delusions with which fallen men clothe the nakedness of their souls. They're deceived. Yet God has Satan on a leash. Hallelujah. I know he does. Satan is a dog on a leash. He's a bad dog, but he's a dog on a leash. He may be the instigator of strife and division, but God is the God of peace. Paul assures the obedient that the God of peace will shortly bruise Satan under your feet. You stay obedient. You obey the word. You obey the word. And God himself will bruise Satan under your feet. We wait, amen, do we not, with anticipation for the ultimate crushing of Satan's head at the return of Christ in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where God calls Jesus the bruiser of Satan's head. But in the meantime, obedience to God's word brings a defeat to the activity of the devil in our lives. Good news, James 4, 7. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he's got to flee from you. Now finally, Paul, along with other notable New Testament saints, salutes some members of the Corinthian church. And let's look at them real quickly. 21 to 23, we're almost done. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, or really Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. You say, well, wait a minute, didn't Paul write Romans? What does that mean? There's evidence that Paul was afflicted with an oriental eye disease, ophthalmia, which brought an almost complete blindness. Pastor Jeff, come on. He handed out handkerchiefs, and people were healed. 
He didn't have ophthalmia. He said to the Galatian church, I believe it was, I bear you witness that if you could have, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Why would he say that? Because his eyes were, looked bad. And they were bad. He was afflicted. I think it was this, ophthalmia, that very possibly was his thorn in the flesh. His famous thorn in the flesh. I besought the Lord three times, take it away from me. And he finally said, my grace is sufficient for you. What was it? It's possibly, very possibly, this right here. So he had to have people dictate for him. He found it necessary to dictate his letters to his secretary, hence Tertius or Tertius. Then he goes on, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. And then Erastus, who is the city's director of public works. So they had government folks in church. And our brother Quartus sends you their greetings. So then Paul conveys these greetings from the saints of God, linking the family of faith together with the bonds of Christian love. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Now I want us to stand and read together the benediction. We're going to finish Romans, and we're going to go light the candle. All right. How many of you have enjoyed this series? Hasn't it been a great series? Amen. Well, let's read it with gusto like we're all preaching to somebody. Are you ready? Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Give him a hand. Amen. All right, Kathy, no more announcements, right? Sunday, bring somebody who needs Jesus. The church is growing. People are being saved. God is good. In five minutes, we're going to be out there lighting the sign. Go grab some coffee. Go fellowship, and we'll see you out there. And see you Sunday. Amen.